Why do clear goals drive flow? Well, they tell you to where to put your attention now and where to put it next. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Productivity is Podcast. It's me, Mike Vardy, once again joining you. And this week on the program, I'm joined by Stephen Kotler. We had a fantastic conversation revolving around his new book, The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. He's the best-selling author of The Rise of Superman and so many other books. We get into a lot in this episode, not nearly as much as I would like, because as I was going through this book, uh, there was just a lot of fantastic material that I'm going to tap into time and time again. I encourage you to pick up the book, but first, listen to my conversation with Stephen Kotler here on the Productivity is Podcast. All right, I got the book here, The Art of Impossible, a Peak Performance Primer. And before we hit record, I was just saying, you know, this is this is a book that as I was going through it, I'm like, I'm going to dig into this again and again and again, because it's not something I think that you can read and then just go like there's there's some sitting with it. I found as I went through it, even as I took notes, when you put this thing together and I know you've got a lot of uh, history working with this kind of stuff and this is just the latest in in the line. Um what was the impetus about putting this particular book out? Because you've talked about this stuff before, but was it, and I know you talk about books over blogs in the book. Was, what was the reason behind saying, this is the book I need to put out now? Well, it's, there's not a simple, quick answer to it. At the center of my work is the state of consciousness known as flow, right? Mm-hmm. Peak performance, optimal performance. We can go into a lot more detail, but flow is defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. My gig, what I've done over my career is I've spent 30 years doing those moments in time when impossible becomes possible. Done it in pretty much every domain imaginable. Sports, science, art, technology, culture, whatever. When you see the impossible become possible, I tried to be there. I tried to figure out what the hell is going on. How did this become possible? Um, Specifically, focusing on what's going on in the brain and human peak performance. That said, and we started making a lot of progress in a decoding flow. Where is it coming from? How do we get more of it? And we started because I was working, most of the work that had been done on flow and training flow had been done on flow psychology. And if you look at the track record of how you held up flow a second ago. So if you go into Chicksemi-High teamed up with Susan Jackson, they wrote another book called Flow in Sports where they talk about, hey, we tried to use all the psychology to train athletes into flow and they had very mixed success. It wasn't, they, were, they weren't great at it. Neurobiology, the different psychology, psychology, while incredibly useful, is often metaphor. Neurobiology is mechanism. And if you're looking to make something reliable and repeatable, you want mechanism. Mm -hmm. So what started to happen around the time I got involved in this work in the late 90s, we started to decode the neurobiology of flow. By the time I started training flow in around 2013, we knew enough to be dangerous. And what we started to realize in training flow is, wow, from the neurobiology, this stuff is remarkably trainable. At the Flow Research Collective, the organization I run, we train we train everybody. So we start at like Olympic athletes and U.S. Special Forces through like C-suite executives at most major companies, all the way to like, you know, yoga moms in Indiana and um, insurance brokers in Iowa, like huge spectrum. So we have a huge database on, on what works and what doesn't. We train about a thousand people a month. So lots of folks, lots of information, lots of data. What we've learned, we've measured flow pre and post actually using the exact same scale that Susan Jackson and me, Chick, Semi High developed together. 
And we see on average a 70% boost in flow, remarkably consistent. So one, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because nobody had written a how-to using the neurobiology and flow. So like it wasn't out there and there was a lot of really, like I wrote Rise of Superman, tried to lay all this stuff out and a lot of crazy stuff started coming out about how you do this. And I was like, well, okay, that's, I don't like, maybe that stuff works or maybe it doesn't, but like, I don't see any research. I don't know what this is other than your opinion and the science, the data, what like, you know, thousands of scientists who contribute to this research have found is very different and we know some stuff. So that was where it started. But here's the real answer to your question. In training flow, we started to very quickly realize, wow, you can get a 70% boost in flow in almost anybody. And then in most people, there's this spectacular return to baseline afterwards. Now, flow is uh, an incredibly pleasurable state, right? It's essentially considered the most addictive state on earth. Once the experience starts producing flow, people will go really far to get more of it. When your business is, hey, we're going to train you how to create more flow, and I turn the flow tap way on, and it works, and then it stops working, you get really pissed, and you get pissed at me, right? And that's what started to happen. It wasn't that people were pissed. It was that I was like, what was going on? And I started to realize, and this is, this, this is what the book is based on, is flow amplifies a bunch of cognitive skills. But if you don't, if you haven't trained up the same skills that flow amplifies, if you haven't really developed the motivational skills, the creativity skills, the learning skills, the car comes off the tracks. It's like you take a Model T, you keep the original tires, you swap out the engine for something that goes turbo, and then you try to drive the Model T at 200 miles an hour. And what happens? The engine goes that fast, but the car can't handle it and it cracks up. That was what was happening to people. And so we started to realize that flow, while necessary for peak performance is necessary, but not sufficient. And there's other things going on and motivation, learning, creativity, the the skills that are at the heart of art and possible were what was missing. So once you start layering that in, it stabilizes what's possible with flow. So that was one of the really big reasons. And also the core idea that's introduced at the start of the book is this notion that we live by at the flow research collective, which is personality doesn't scale biology scales, right? Right. Simply put, because of nature and nurture stuff, because of genetics, because the early childhood experience locks in certain things in your psychology very early, what works for me? Like if I figure out what works for me and I try to teach it to you, it's as a general rule, not going to work. And often it's a spectacular failure and can cause real damage in your life. And peak performance has become a hot topic for bloggers, for podcasters, for a lot of people. And so there's a lot of people who figured out works for them and they're trying to teach it to other people. And personally, I think they're doing a ton of damage. Biology scales. Biology is what was designed by evolution to work for everyone. You take things down to neurobiology, that's what works for everybody. But at this squishy subjective level of of psychology, not even just general psychology, but personal, like what works for me, this stuff is often a disaster. And I, the self-help movement makes it worse. And I just felt like one, because flow is the big picture, because it's optimal performance and optimizes the whole system. My research, I had to learn everything about it, the system because if flow amplifies it, I got to know how it works. So how does that work and why and all that stuff. So I had the big picture. I was looking at all this stuff and I was looking at all the nonsense that was coming out coupled to the fact that like, whoa, we can train up flow, but we need to train up these other things at once. And people aren't talking about that. Even people who are talking about flow 
don't have the full picture there right because they're talking about it as if it's like it was a magic pill and a cure for everything and you know that's more kind of crazy information that's not you know i really wanted to help people and 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 the final reason is the core reason at the heart of the book like human beings 30 years of research has taught me consistently we are all capable of so much more than we know we're all hardwired for kind of extraordinary so we're not all doing extraordinary i like to say that my books have you know 13 books they all celebrate people who accomplished impossible feats and break down why all the people in those books are the winners Right. But for everybody in the book, there were like 10,000 people who got very close and didn't end up in the book. And I write books about people trying to do things like solve grand global challenges like poverty or energy scarcity or, you know, because of the work I've done in technology and with Singularity University as well. I've had a look at the kind of this kind of like save the world entrepreneurship. And I will tell you that invariably when people go don't make it into the book, right, they almost get somewhere and, and it's very rarely the actual challenge that screws them up. And it's very rarely the thing they're trying to accomplish. It's usually they trip over their own biology. They trip over their own psychology. They get in their own way. Now, I don't know how to solve water scarcity in Africa, and I don't know how to solve energy shortages in Asia. I know how to stop us from tripping over our own biology. And I certainly need other people to do those things. So I felt like it was also like, that was the other side of it. Like I was seeing all these things where I was like, wait, there's a better way to do this. There's like the science tells us something here and, and we have answers here instead of, you know, just your opinion on what works for you. And plus I thought like, especially now, it, it's probably a good time for the world to figure this stuff out a little bit. And if I could help a little bit, you know, I'm going to try to help a little bit. You know, as, as I went through the book, one of the stories right at the beginning that stood out that kind of led you towards the idea of saying, hey, you know, what? The, the impossible is possible was the magic trick story about your brother. You know, how he how he basically put you know, all of a sudden he had this magic trick. And as I was going through the book, I started to think about this magic show that I watched virtually not too long ago. And it's the uh, film in and of itself. I don't know if you've seen it yet. I Have you seen, seen it? it? Oh. No. It's it's magic layered. It's it's a phenomenal thing. And and as you're talking about it, I mean, there's surface level magic, right? There's like the the. It's kind of like how when people talk about productivity, they talk about life hacks. You know, like yep. hack this, hack that. But then there's a deeper because life hacks are often what people will do with life hacks is they will hack something that doesn't need to be hacked, but they feel that it's it's a it's a measure of productivity because they've hacked it, right? So they'll hack their life to death to a degree. They they will constantly look for ways to hack things instead of saying, okay, I'm going to hack these things so I can go long and deep with these other things. And that's kind of what I found is with, like you said, with flow, um, as I was going through the book and, and I started to see things like purpose and, and then the idea of specificity and drive really took, can we talk a little bit about the need for specificity when it comes to drive? You talk about like the specific actions, like being more specific, about the goals, especially when you're talking about like to-do lists and projects and things like that. How, how, how important do you think that plays a role in tapping into, you know, intrinsic drive and, and things it, like yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's, so it's huge. Um, well, I could actually give you some numbers because there's research on this. Mm-hmm. So just so we can sort of get, catch the readers up. Sure. The art of impossible, when we talk about the big, the big picture, what is peak performance? One, Peak performance is nothing more, as we talked about, than getting our biology to work for us yep. rather than against us. Now, that biology is a limited 
set of skills. If you're talking about cognitive peak performance, which is what I focus on, it's a bunch of motivational skills that get you into the game. There's a bunch of learning skills that allow you to continue to play. There's a bunch of creativity skills that help you steer. And finally, there's flow skills that help you amplify the results sort of beyond all reasonable expectations. Right. Now, all of those terms are catch-alls, right? When psychologists say motivation, right? Motivation technically means the energy for action. But what they really are talking about is extrinsic motivation. Shit in the real world we want that will be motivated to go get money, yeah. sex, fame. Intrinsic motivation, a bunch of the drivers that you mentioned, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, the desire to steer our own ship, mastery, the desire to steer it well, um, goals and grit. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, you're talking about goals. So to properly set goals, first you need all your intrinsic, major intrinsic motivators sort of pointed in the same direction, right? Once that's done, what the research shows is, hey, we need three tiers of goal setting. We need mission-level goals. I want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. We need high-hard goals. These are like the one- to five-year chunks that feed into my mission-level goals. So get a degree in journalism or creative writing. Get a job on a magazine and you know learn to put words together in a straight line. Write a book about cooking, fishing, podcasting, the Avengers. Take your pick. I'm Kaiser Sozain. <laughs> um, those are your high-hard goals. And then there are daily clear goals. These are the tiny little chunks, right, that feed into your higher goals, that feed into your mission stealth goals. When you get to higher goals and clear goals, so probably I can give you data on high hard goals because there's data. So Gary Locke and John Latham, um, Locke and Latham were the fathers of goal setting theory. Um, they were the first people who figured out, hey, if you properly set, and we'll come back to what properly set means, a high hard goal, you can get an 11 to 25% boost in motivation. Simply for setting write a proper goal that's if an eight hour day is your baseline that's two extra free hours of work simply for setting a proper goal that's amazing so what is a proper goal one of the things is usually process goals work better than outcome goals because we can control processes and we can't control outcomes now there are times when high hard goals like i'm going to get a college degree well that's an outcome goal um but to make it more process oriented, maybe I'm sometime over the next five years, I'm going to get a college degree that gives you a little more wiggle, right? that kind of stuff. But clarity is the most important thing when it comes to goal setting. And the reason is quite simply this. We are humans, goal directed machines. We do not, as a general rule, and I could go into a lot of scientific geeky detail here if you want, we don't really live in reality. We live in a very limited consciousness is about 2,000 bits of information at any one time. And the vast majority of those bits that what gets through the, all the brain's filters and actually like pops into your consciousness and you're aware of, almost all of it is either your fears or your goals. Fears or goals. What are you running away from? What are you running towards? Approach, avoid, approach, avoid, approach, avoid. Really basic, but that's how we're designed to work. In fact, um, one of the easier ways to dial down anxiety is to increase curiosity about the thing that was making you anxious because it's very hard for the human body to feel both at once. Um, and they're essentially the same neural chemical. They're underneath the, both those feelings. We've got the right. same thing. Right. Anyways, proper goals, clear goals. Goal-directed machines need to know where the fuck am I going, right? We need to know where we're going at all times. So on the daily goals, they're called clear goals specifically because the emphasis is not 
falls on clarity. The problem also with especially Western audiences is slightly different if you get into Asia, I've discovered. In Western audiences, if you say clear goals to Western audiences, they don't even hear the word clear. Right. They hear the word goals. Yeah. They're like, all right, all right, I'm going there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. The, not, no, no. The emphasis is literally on clarity. So what's a clear goal? Daily to-do lists, right, is, is how you set up clear goals, right? It's your daily to-do list. I uh, want to write my books every day. So a clear goal is uh, advanced chapter eight, 750 words. And when the reader is done reading those words, they will feel overwhelming joy, right? That's a very clear goal. I know how many words I'm going to write and what emotion I'm trying to produce in my audience on the back end. Right. Um, I know what victory is going to feel like, right? I can, I can, I can check it off. I'm all, that's the really big deal with clear goals. Right. And of course, by the way, if you're setting a clear goals list, most importantly, first of all, write it by hand. It's much better than on a computer. Second of all, check off everything you do because the whole point is get the little dopamine high you get from accomplishing your goal because little high, little high, little high, little high. That's actually momentum. Yeah. That's yeah. how you create, generate momentum in the system. It's funny because, uh, a lot of people will put tasks down like work on a book, which is like the stupidest thing you could possibly do because your brain, you're right. Your brain goes, I can't finish that today. I yeah, can't what finish is, that. What, what, what does that even that? mean? What is what it work on book? And, and what it, they'll it, also do, which I find fascinating is this is, again, I think one of the things that speaking of getting in our own way, and this I come across this a lot, is when I say, no, you need to break down this. Pro what you're looking at is a project. You need to break it down into smaller particles. They're like, yeah, but then my to-do list is longer. I'm like, no, it's not. It's just more visible. I mean, there, there's, there's steps are still there. You're just yeah. seeing them. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, as, yes, yes, exactly. So let's talk about this in a slightly sure. different way. Cause I sure. like, I'm not a fan of the term hack. I don't think yeah. there are hack technically means short well, hack means to cut without care. That's the definition. Well, well, of the okay. Term. To cut without care is well, okay. One. Yeah. And I, and I just been doing this a long time. Mm -hmm. I found very, few, there are no, there are very few hacks in the way that people mean the term in fact one of the one of the things that i love so um my friend andrew Huberman, who we work with he's a neuroscientist at stanford um i don't know if you've had him on the podcast or not um smart dude he does a lot of work with peak performers as well and uh, he uh points out that one of the things there's a lot of work with the teams the u.s special forces we do as well um but he does more i think and he says you know one of the things about the team guys and peak performers in general that they know that most other people don't, and it's the biggest difference, is that peak performers know that whatever the skill is you know, or the thing that you're trying to do or learn, it's always crawl, walk, run. Always crawl, walk, run. And what happens is most of us get into a situation, most people get into a situation like, dude, man, I don't, I don't crawl. That's just not me, you know? And in fact, I don't, I don't, I don't even walk. I, I started a jog. That's what I, that's me, you know? <laughs> And so they spend months looking for a way to start at a jog. And meanwhile, the people that actually understand that peak performance is crawl, walk, run. And let's be clear, when I talk about crawl, like skill acquisition, I don't care how expert you are at whatever it is, the experience of skill acquisition for all of us is always the same. I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, look, I don't suck, right? That's it, that's experience. It's mm -hmm. always the experience because learning is an unconscious process. And until... The unconscious mind figures out how to do these patterns without the conscious mind being involved. The experience is I suck. Yep. That's just what it is. There's no way around it. 
And the difference is, you know, you meet peak performers um, and people often have this reaction of basically like, how the hell did you get so far ahead? You're so far. How, how did you do that? And well, one answer is I didn't spend two months looking for a shortcut because I knew it's crawl, walk, run. So I just sucked it up. I said, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable for a while. I'm going to be bad until I'm better. Whatever. That's just cost to do in business. I'm not going to take it personally. And they get on with it. And everybody else runs around looking for shortcuts and they end up years and years and years behind front of the field. How does the habit of ferocity play into all of this? Because when I saw that, I'm like, ooh, I, I like that. This term. is a yeah, this is a great place to go after this. So in the motivation skill set, extrinsic motivation drivers, intrinsic drivers, grit and goals. And there's six levels to grit, three levels to goal setting. Right, five major intrinsic drivers and, and one extrinsic driver precondition. Right, that's what really we're talking about. More specifics to be found in the book. Yes, Amazon people, Amazon. Anyways, uh, but the point here is what happens? What do you get like when you get all that shit lined up? Well, one of the things you're going to start to get is a lot more flow. A lot of that's going to come from having your intrinsic dr- drivers lined up and pointing in the same direction, but clear goals. Um, are also a flow trigger, one of the known preconditions that lead to more flow. Um, and we could talk about why that is, but we'll just park that for there. Mm-hmm. And there are about six layers of grit. You want to start training grit after you start getting more flow because otherwise it's miserable and you will burn out. And there's a kind of a, a specific way you want to train grit. Physical, always in, when with grit, you want to start with physical, then move to the mental and blah, blah, blah. Anyways. Once all that happens, what do you get when it's all said and done? Because you don't have to do this stuff indefinitely. There are onboarding processes to get it right. And while there are six different kinds of grid, and they all have to sort of be trained up independently, as you get better and better, they start coming together and becomes the same thing. It's a lot less to do, right? And totally doable by anybody. But if you get it all right, right, um, you end up with what I've called, I don't have that. I, I try very hard to avoid making up terms. It drives me crazy when people do it. But sometimes. you know, they're important though. You mentioned but that in this, the book, you know, yeah. they're important. <laughs> I know they're important. So this is one of the few terms I did make up um, because it was the only way I could describe what I was seeing over and over and over again. And I call it the habit of ferocity. And the way I describe it is it's sort of like a lean in instinct. When all of your motivators, when all of your drivers, when all that stuff is pointed in the same direction, Right when your biology is working for you rather than against you, the point I always like to say is you get farther faster with a lot less fuss. That's what happens if you do this right. Now, what does that mean here? What's the habit of ferocity? Well, when peak performers are presented with a challenge, they lean in immediately. Most everybody else who doesn't have all these things pointing in the same direction, there's a lag time. Problem shows up, challenge shows up, whatever. Even if you're on your game, you're going to spend five minutes going, oh, fuck, why me? Uh, well, maybe there's something neat on Twitter. Or, oh, did they do something cool on Instagram? Or let me call my mom and she'll listen to me complain for two minutes and then I'll get to work, right? And you, can, and you still have to do the thing. You know you're going to have to do the thing because it's job or whatever, but you spend five, six, seven minutes. So dithering around. That's most people. Peak performers, people who have developed all these, the lean and instinct, the habit of ferocity, they jump in immediately. Now, we did a survey about four years ago. wasn't huge, but I talked to, I think it was 250 top executives, and I said, how many big problems do you think you solve a day? How many challenges do you think you solve a day that are, that are significant, 
that are like going to catch your attention. The situation that I'm describing where you would, most people would just dither. And the average was about five problems a day. And if you just assume you're going to dither for five minutes, which is probably less than most people dither, but let's just say it's five minutes and it's five problems a day. Habit of ferocity, problem shows up, you're already trying to solve it. It's like even before it fully registers, you're trying to solve it. You're leaning in, you're, you're there. It's five minutes a problem that you're going to save. 25 minutes a day. It's three and a half hours a week, but here's the big deal. It's three and a half weeks a year. Yeah. Right? It's three and a half weeks a year. So again, right, when you meet the peak performers and you're like, well, how the hell did you get so far ahead? The answer is, well, habit of frosty. I got this far ahead five minutes at a time. I didn't waste my time trying to solve something that I couldn't solve anyways. You're going to have to solve the problem. Why would you waste the energy, the focus, the, all that other stuff um, doing that? Also, worse, without the habit of ferocity, and this is, I think, the key thing. Flow, state of optimal performance, follows focus. It shows up when all our attention is in the right here, right now. That's what the flow triggers mm -hmm. do, by the way. Clear goals, they help us focus our attention on what we're doing, right? right? All the triggers work that way. I can go into the science of how they do that, but whatever. That's how they all work. But the point is also that if you're in flow, any kind of anything, first of all, that pulls on your emotions even a little bit will yank you right out of flow. So like if a problem shows up and you've got this habit you can, and you're in flow a little bit and you know, transitioning into your next task and, oh, this is worse than I thought, you, if you can transition in right away, you can probably stay in flow. Mm -hmm. But if you freak out and have that emotional response and – break focus by getting online to distract all that stuff. You've now pulled yourself out of flow. There's really good data from coding, for example, um, where when coders get knocked out of flow by distraction, it will take them a minimum of 15 minutes to get back in, even if they can get back in at all. And that's coders, which is a pretty well-focused, like they're trained up more than a lot of other people on how to do this stuff. So it's interesting. There's a lot to be gained uh, from the habit of ferocity, there's a lot to gain from kind of being able to marshal that instinct. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. Let's take a break from the conversation to share a word about our sponsors. Now, if you want to perform at your best, at your peak, you're going to want to try to create this optimal environment for yourself. Mentally, physically, emotionally, psychologically, all of those things matter. And if something's interfering with your happiness, that's going to get in the way. Now, I can say for a fact that I can't 
do what I do alone. No peak performer can. And that's why I use BetterHelp. You see, BetterHelp will assess your needs just as they have mine and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. I mean, I've run into issues of overwhelm, overcommitment. Sometimes I end up testing my own boundaries and seeing how far I can go. And it puts me in a position that I don't really want to be in. It gives me the, those levels of stress I don't want. It, um, it, it can affect me and, and has an impact on how I perform. BetterHelp has been the answer for me. You can connect in a safe and private online environment with BetterHelp. It's so convenient. And you can start communicating with your licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Now, BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in a variety of fields, such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, grief, family conflicts, LGBT matters, and much more. Anything that you share is confidential. And if you need to somehow make a shift with your with your therapist, like I had to, simply due to scheduling, well, BetterHelp makes it easy. They are committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy. And they make it free to change counselors if needed. And it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp is convenient. BetterHelp is professional. BetterHelp is affordable. I want you to start living a happier life today. I want you to start to be able to perform at those peak levels and get into flow like we've been talking about with Steven today. So as a listener of the Productivity is Podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. All you need to do is visit our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash timecrafting. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash timecrafting. Do it today. Spending time looking for apps is not exactly how I like to use my time. I'm big on finding what I need quickly and making sure that what I need to use on my Mac and on my iOS devices is going to work and that these apps are full featured and there's less friction and more flow. Again, we're back to that theme of flow that we're talking about with Steven here. Well, set app has allowed me to do that. Getting things done is a challenge and everyone struggles with it. Everyone, including myself. <laughs> now, one way to tackle it is, of course, is to make sure that you've got your right tools, which I just discussed, in front of you, on your computer, on your devices. And of course, that means the right apps. Now, here's the thing. Not all apps do what they promise. You know, it's easy to download a lot of them. I've done that. My, my fair share of downloading has happened over the years. And you can set up the accounts, of course. That takes time. You can even pay a small fee to use them. But then they all just sit unused. It's just so easy to clutter your devices with apps that just don't work out or didn't work out. And that's why they're set up. Set up is a fantastic tool. I'm so glad that they are sponsoring the Productivity is Podcast because I love what they offer. Setup is on a mission to help users get more done. With Setup, there's no more worrying about having to search for apps to solve a problem because with Setup, you get high quality apps for every task. And Setup curates and recommends the right apps for you so you can focus on your work. You can quickly find and select the most effective apps you need for tasks, both the ones you do every day and the ones, you know, you do every once in a blue moon. And Setup users feel more empowered. They're more confident. 
They're spending time on their tasks. They have the right apps at their disposal, so they're more productive, they get more done, and they spend more time doing what they enjoy. With Setup, you can think about your tasks and not apps. Plus, Setup packs over 200 high-quality apps for your Mac and iPhone into one. There's an app for almost any task, so you can stay in your flow. See what I did there? And finish what you started. Setup has a dedicated curation team as well, and they only select the highest-quality apps, so you don't have to search for the best tools anymore. They're already in Setup. And it's also a great value. Instead of paying thousands of dollars for separate licenses, there's just one flat monthly fee. And new apps are added to Setup regularly, updates are free, and all the apps are full-featured pro versions. What are you waiting for? Head over to setapp.com to try Setup free for a week. And if you like Setup, and I know you will, plans start at just $9.99 per month. That's a steal. Use Setup for as long as it's useful for you and it will be useful for you for the long haul. It has been for me. I know it'll be the same for you. So make it happen. Head over to setapp.com. That's S-E-T-A-P-P.com and put Setup through the paces today. Your productivity will thank you for it. And now let's get back to the program. Patterns help too, I guess, right? When it comes to flow, like if you, if it, it, they'll help you stay in flow because there's familiarity there and there's something you can follow, right? Like, so if something, well, that, bra- I think that's a huge thing, right? I think it's helpful. It's also, you're also back to clear goals, yeah. right? Like why do clear goals drive flow? Well, they tell you to where to put your attention now and where to put it next. Mm-hmm. So like when you transition between tasks, this is a really important thing, but Flow is just a fo- way of focusing, right? If you're in, if you get into flow really easily, like I write first thing, yeah. right? I mean, I'm writing a book. I love writing my books most of the time. They're fun. I'm in flow. But the second thing I got to do is like, oh, I gotta, I gotta write a speech on like the future of healthcare technology for blah blah. And that's harder and more work. And maybe I'll enjoy giving the speech, but writing speeches not as much fun. But if I carry the flow, right? If I don't break state in between. I can stretch that out and start to use some of that energy, some of that focus, some of that flow to do the thing that I really want to do a lot less and it makes it a lot easier and obviously I perform a lot better. So there's, you know, that to me is a real hack. You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. it's worked on the bike. It's not a shortcut. No. It's just telling you how to like, here's how your biology works. Here's how you, you know, keep it working the way it should and, you know. Yeah, you're just creating That's a path. You're just forging a path for it to follow as opposed to like finding a shortcut, which is, you know, um, one of the things I want to talk about because I, I want to make sure that we are respectful of time is time, is the idea of autonomy and time and those relationships. I know in the in the book you talk about um, Patagonia, you tell the story of Patagonia, how they make their own schedules like, they, you know, and there are so many people, maybe you who are watching right now or listening right now, like there is no... How do I make my own schedule within the confines of a scheduled world? Or for example, I'm a night owl, right? So I living in a nine to five world was a challenge until I decided, well, wait a minute, what if I just structure it in a different way that may like structure my work within the confines of that in a different way. And boom, all of a sudden I'm able to perform at a higher level. How can, what are some of the tips? Because I know before autonomy, we get into the other level, which is mastery, right? Like that we get to that level. Um, People who struggle with getting to those two, what tips do you have for them? I mean, obviously, we want them to go through the book, and there's a lot of things. You can't skip steps. But someone who – I think that's where people can really get caught, right? They get struggled. They feel like they don't have autonomy. And so, how do I get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's there's a handful of answers here. Mm-hmm. 
let's first start where you started, which is, hey, there's a bunch of intrinsic motivators and they decide to work in a certain order. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Curiosity is the foundational intrinsic motivator. It is designed biologically to be built into passion, right? Passion is nothing fancier than the intersection of multiple curiosities and a bunch of little wins. Yep. Right? That's what passion is. Once you have passion, the system wants purpose, right? You're on fire. Now share the fire with your tribe, your people, your family, right? So the system wants to you take your passion, attach it to a cause greater yourself that gives you purpose. Once you have purpose, what do you need next? Autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. Once you have that, you need mastery, the skills to pursue it well. Right. So that's the full stack of the most important intrinsic motivators. There's a bunch of others, right? Yep. Um, spite is an intrinsic motivator. In fact, I love spite. Small s spite is an intrinsic motivator. Bulletin board material. Yeah. I love proving people wrong. <laughs> it's a great motivator. Social media is great for that, isn't it? <laughs> it's just not one of the big five. Um, but uh, autonomy is interesting. So the question has been, so the, let's talk about why autonomy matters so much. Yeah. Most of peak performance, a lot of peak performance is about focus, right? One of the reasons the intrinsic motivators matter so much is because they give you focus for free. Like, why is passion such a big deal? You get focus for free. Remember the first time you fell in love, boyfriend, girlfriend, pet, whatever, you couldn't stop thinking of them, right? That's focus for free. That's amazing. Brain is 25% of our energy at rest, 2% of our body weight. Huge energy hog. Yeah. Right. When you're trying to pay attention to something that's hard, you're burning through energy. You're burning calories. You're exhausting willpower. Right. It's you want focus for free. It gets you farther faster. So autonomy is really tricky because autonomy is actually coupled to attention. We literally cannot pay full attention to something unless we believe we're driving. We want to steer our own ship. Right. Mm -hmm. This is really foundational kind of evolutionary reward biology. We have the better chance of like feeding ourselves and having reproductive success if we're running the show. Right. Yeah. If you're in charge of your life, you have a better chance of getting fed and laid than if you're not. Like that's just, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. true now, <laughs> true millions of years ago on the belt uh -huh. when the brain evolved. Right. It hasn't changed. So autonomy is coupled to attention. It raises the question. How much autonomy do you need, right? Like, okay, I need autonomy. I got a boss. I got to work for a living. Like, what the hell? You're a night owl, right? And uh, the work schedule, what do you do? So that's a really interesting question. And the, the first, the, the eventual goal, I think, um, especially if you're a night owl, like if your circadian rhythms, if your biology does not fit into a normal um, work schedule, mine doesn't. I'm, an ex I'm the opposite of you. I'm yeah. an extreme lark. I get up at 3.34. You know, today I got up at 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, and you talk about um, non-time in the book as well. Yeah, in mine, the middle of the night. Mine, for me, it's flipped. I got to that point. I'm like, well, yeah. we're just, you're doing it we're that just time. Flipped. I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah, we're just we're flipped. Just flipped. Yeah. But it's, yeah. So, I like, I can't, you know, you want to schedule a meeting with me around like um, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to get a stupid dude on the other end of the phone. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. I'm not, like, I'm not there. But, uh, I found way for first I had to become a freelancer. Then I had to start my own company. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I had to over a long period of time. And it really was a long period of time. It was decades. I just took more and more and more control of my life. So first of all, that is probably going to be the eventual goal. If you're like, if you don't work in such a way that you fit comfortably into society, great. Take back your life from society, take control, just set 
do it over a decade. Don't try to do it in uh, six months or a year or even two years. I mean, it literally took me, I think, 20-some years to fully achieve what I was going for and the level of autonomy I really wanted. Um, now, that's really ex- extreme. I wanted way more autonomy than most people right. ever possibly want. Right. Right. I live out here in the middle of nowhere in my fortress of solitude and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, um, the research shows, it turns out, you actually don't need that much autonomy to pull on this motivator, right? I was so hoping you get there. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is, <laughs> so Google gets at it with 20% time, right? They give their engineers 20% of their work life to pursue projects of their own devising, and it's massively successful. 50% of Google's highest revenue earning projects came out of 20% time. They didn't invent it. 3M invented it. Back in the 60s, they came up with 15% time. And Post-it notes came out of 15% time. Post-it notes alone generate over a billion dollars in revenue for 3M every year. That one 15% time invention literally pays for the company. The entire R&D department every year is paid for by that one invention. I think the billion number is right. It's in Art it's and in the, It's in the book. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I, think, think, I, think I got it, that right. I think it's, Maybe I'm I think it's 500 million and a billion or something like that. It's somewhere in there. But nonetheless. Yeah, t- as I said it, I went, wow, that seems really high. So check it in the book. I yeah. might I might be misquoting my but own book. But nonetheless, that's massive. Um, and by the way, ma- if I remember massive. correctly, three that was through experimentation. Like you said, yeah. it was a complete experiment. That, that those Total experiment. Pass. But it turns out you brought up Patagonia. You don't even need – now, 15% of time means you have to dispose – if you have 15% of your time, is like an afternoon a week, mm-hmm. right? So, like, you could trigger this motivator by spending your Saturday focused on what you love and then the rest of the week paying the man, and you're still able to tap a little bit this. Patagonia does it by allowing employees to make their own schedule and they have one other they and they allow people to get regular exercise and chase flow whenever they want. They have a house policy called let my people go surfing. Patagonia is right on the Pacific. So if the waves are breaking, you can go surfing. So Patagonia's model was schedule and surfing. What does that give you? And by, by the way, people love working from Patagonia tops list, best places to work in America. And if you ask people why autonomy tops their list. So Schedule matters because, as you pointed out, you want to be able to work in conjunction with your biology. Some of this are extreme larks. Some of this are normal morning risers. You're at your best at like 9 a.m. Some of this, like yourself, are night owls, right? So you just want to be able to go to work and start your work session when you are at your focused, most alert, most productive best, right? That's the big deal about schedule. And the second thing is peak performance requires sleep. On average, you need seven to eight hours of sleep a night to perform at your best. If you want to get into flow, flow is a high energy state. So if you want to consistently get more flow in your life, you need seven, eight hours of sleep a night. And there are a lot of people out there who are like, dude, no way, I can't sleep. You know what I mean? You hear a lot of that. It was, it was a huge deal. Remember, it was a badge of honor, the less sleep you had. And the less, now, and now I, it's by the way, shifted. I, it I was I was that same guy. Yeah. I right like I was that same guy. Oh, I can work for four days straight without sleeping and blah. And now I you know don't and it, and, it, and it was never quality. That was what when I started really prioritizing my sleep. I was like, oh my god, my work is going up so much. Mm-hmm. I get so much more done. The quality is so much better. I'm saving time. Not right. An hour spent sleeping is better than an hour spent working tired for yeah. the quality of the work. Right. So Patagonia gives you a chance to. Get a good night's sleep and work in accordance with your biology. Surfing is about regular exercise, which keeps your nervous system in check 
and regular access to flow, which has a bunch of significant performance benefits that we can talk about later. But that's all the autonomy you really need. And if you're working in a situation that really sucks, right, all you have to do is now the time is you work on reframing, right? Cognitive reframing. Mastery is actually a bigger motivator than autonomy. It will trump autonomy. So if you're, let's say your boss is asking you to do something that you really don't want to do, like a job you don't want to do, there's no autonomy. It's like all the conditions for misery and burnout and everything else. The secret, find something in the job that will train up a skill that you will want later in life for mastery. A skill, like uh, the best example is, I did this once in a situation where I had to run a team for like two months mm-hmm. and everybody on the team, like each person was worse than the next. It was like captain unfriendly, captain super bitchy. You know what I mean? Like you were just like, what the hell? <laughs> like it's like the anti-superhero squad, right? <laughs> like there's captain complainer over there and blame shifter over there. And like, Oh my God. And what I decided is I was like, okay, this is like, I, this is a condition for disaster for me. I'm an introvert. I don't even like people. And I got to manage a team of like this. And I was like, great, fantastic. This is my chance to master the skill of running a team of awful people. I'm going to learn how to work with awful people people over the next three months and it actually turned something that was miserable into a game and it made it really fun and i was sort of like really motivated to go into these terrible situations but even that kind of reframing that's enough to say oh there's something here i'm going to learn i'm going to need this later in life cool excellent now i've got a little bit of autonomy you don't need a lot well and it also Um, leads to that mastery like for example i've done a workshop for government and they're like, the biggest problem when it comes to time management is email, 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 email. And I can't necessarily solve that problem because my answer would be, stop sending so many damn emails. Like that would be one of the, but it's just not well, the way they also, work. Well, also, I but, will say one thing on email. Yeah. One thing I want to have sure, to say on email, because sure. I do think this is true. If you're using Gmail, I think you're a moron. And the reason is nobody at Google understands cognitive load. They designed, they designed Gmail literally, as far as I could tell, to massively increase cognitive load. Mm-hmm. Gmail itself produces so much unnecessary stress because their interface sucks. So one, if email is a problem, we're going to go back to you and everything you have to say I think is true. Yep. But you can check your interface because if you're using if, – if you're overwhelmed by email – I am guessing you're on Gmail. I still use Safari. I use Mac Mail. I use um, no, I use I, which, use I use Front. I like Front okay. because I can segment it out. You're right. You have to have these different silos. Filtration. You talk about that in the book. The importance for filtration. I know that this this means this. Therefore, I can get into it faster and with more uh, confidence. Right. With more mm-hmm. like, okay, I know what the messaging here is supposed to be. But you're right, Gmail and Outlook to a degree as well. Uh, I'll look to a degree, but I, and I will, the other thing I will also say is we know this, like try to send as few emails as possible because every email you send results in yep. one and a half emails that come back to you. Right. Yep. So like, we know that one. Yeah. Um, yep. I, and I still, to this day, I will do any, everything in my power to be able to pick up the phone and call you. Sure. Uh, it's I the mean, most if, efficient thing. Well, and also there's the nuance happens and all that stuff, right? Like, I mean, texting, all that stuff. I love getting on the phone. I love having those, those conversations, but 
when I when I do have conversations with people who feel like they are trapped in email or that they have no choice, um, I used to go in with like, don't answer email first thing in the morning. I'm my very very stoic uh, and, and oh, and I still. Steadfast. By the way, I you should never answer email before you start your hardest oh, task agreed, of the day. Agreed wholeheartedly. Sure. Anything that's gonna mess with your emotions or could mess with your emotions, oh my god, don't uh-huh. do that before. It's, it's bad Christmas. It could be completely bad Christmas. But what I do learn from those situations, because I used to go into those with dread, and I'm like, okay, how do I help someone who feels like they can't be helped in this situation? I just did one earlier today. And they're like, I never thought about it that way. I never thought. And see, once you get to that level of mastery that you're talking about, like you talk about in the book, you you have an ability to look at things and connect dots that don't normally connect. And everything in my study, I can look at, and that's related to time management or productivity. I've... And it's interesting. The last thing I want to talk about is um, I used to do comedy. I used to I I was a big fan of uh, doing stand up and I did improv and sketch. And I remember the movie Comedian. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's the Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld. movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerry Seinfeld and Orny Adams. And it's two Mm -hmm. comedians with two completely different approaches. And Jerry Seinfeld. One of the things he said is, is he said, Comedians make the ordinary extraordinary, the extraordinary ordinary. And there's a relatability factor that I've heard talked about as well. And what I've found is my creativity, and and I know you talk, there's a whole section in the book about creativity, is I used to try to shut it off when it wasn't, when I wasn't in that environment. And as soon as I got okay, in fact, more than okay, embracing the creativity and that long haul creativity that you talk about where things are just it opened up doors. So can we talk a little bit bef- you know, about that? You know, the idea of how, like, I mean, and, and maybe this is the better way to phrase it. Uh, to people who try to turn that off, like I'm going into this part of my world right now, this doesn't have a place in it, I should be focused on this instead. And they're kind of leaving behind some valuable things through the creative process that yeah. could help them. Yeah, for right? sure. So one, I want one last thing on email that I always want to point out to okay. people. Your work comes first. Mm -hmm. Don't let other people make work for you before you do your work. So you do your work first, then you other people can make work for you. Agreed. Right. Creativity is is quite simply this. Um, I like this is an easy question to answer, which is you just have to look at the data. Adobe read it, go, go. I mean, I talk a lot in the book about Adobe's state of create study. It's one of the, the best studies on creativity in the workplace. Um, I may get some of these numbers wrong because I don't have it in front of me. But for example, we know creatives are much happier, right? Their overall life satisfaction and well-being is like 25% above non-creatives. Two, they get paid, I think it's 31%, they make 31% more money. I think that's what the number is. It's either 21 or 31%. Mm-hmm. It's not in front of me, as I said, I apologize. Again, again um, it'll be in here. <laughs> it'll be in there. Anyways, every, almost every metric you can... Uh, figure out. In fact, uh, there have been a bunch of overarching studies saying what is the most important skill for thriving in the 21st century? And this is what's the most important skill we can teach our kids. What's the most important skill in a quality in a CEO? Like big across the boards, it's kind of things. It's always creativity. Creativity tops every list. Maybe a couple other things up there, but creativity is at the top of every list for thriving in the 21st century. So one, this the numbers themselves say, if you're trying to check that part of yourself at the door, that's crazy. And two, 
this is not my advice. I want to give credit to uh, Nicole Dedome, who, who said this to me first, and I think this is really important, and it's a weird this – is, this is a tangential thing, but I was um, – we were talking about success at one point, and we were talking about interviews, podcasts, conversations, speeches, all that, like the stuff that comes along with it. She made a comment. I asked her a question like, what do you do? She, she just, her statement was, when in doubt, run towards yourself. And what she was saying is, in situation, as the stress level goes up, as the responsibility goes up, as the eyeballs on you go up, more and more towards your core self. That's the direction you always want to run in because as things get cranked up, first of all, you try to run away from yourself. You're just going to fuck it up, yeah. right? You're just not, like, you're just not going to do it. And second of all, you're going to get, like, people are going to know you're lying. It's really, it gets really obvious. But the, the bigger point is if you're a creative and you're starting to go into high stress business situations, work situations, life situations, and you're trying to park that and check that at the door, are you kidding? Like, first of all, you're not running towards yourself. Second of all, it's going to leak through, right? I like, I, I spent a really long time when I first wrote Rise of Superman, which was the first book I wrote on, uh, on this third, second book, third book I wrote on flow, but the first really big book I wrote on flow. Um, I'm an old school punk rocker from Cleveland, Ohio. Like, let's just be clear. I had a big ass mohawk. I was a crazy looking dude. I had a sixth grade teacher who told me I wouldn't live to see 30 I was the kid that scared parents, blah, blah, blah. My point on all this is I, when Rise came out, I spent, kept getting called to Wall Street to talk to big finance companies. And, you know, I, I still do a lot of that work. But then it was really crazy for like eight month period. I basically lived in New York City, spent all this time on Wall Street. And every time I walked in the room, I was like, do you have any idea who you're talking to? Do you have any idea how much I fucking hated business like like we hated you right i hated i still i'm not terribly fond of a lot a lot of that that group um but like i really because there was no creativity in business there was no passion all the things that i valued they weren't in business um now they are business has changed a lot which is awesome um business has become a really interesting place to be it really wasn't 40 years ago or 30 years ago when i came out of high school um but I spent a really long time like in these rooms, you know what I mean? Feeling very uncomfortable. Like, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? What am I doing here? And then I just started going head on with the problem and starting like speeches with like, you know, I really shouldn't be here. And then I would just like go in and start by telling him why, you know what I mean? I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And it opened like suddenly unlock the playing field. Right. So I like, I don't think you can hide it as the point. And, um, Creativity is a superpower. Like, and ultimately, here's the thing. If you are not actively trying to turn your life into art, right? If you are not trying to make everything you do a vehicle for creative self-expression, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, like, what are you doing? Like, what what are you you just taking up space? Like, what are you doing here? Right? Like, I don't, I don't get it. I'm not trying to be a dick. I foundationally don't understand. I'm baffled by it. Right. Um, and so I couldn't imagine like issuing the creativity when the goal has to be, how can I make my art, art my life? How can I, anything that I do, how do I get great at it? Right? Like, what's the point of doing something if you can't try to be great at it? What's the point of doing, you know, living if you can't try to make your life your art? I don't like, 
I, there, I know there are a lot of other answers to this que- no, question, ways I, to think about it. But I, that's just honestly, this is how I feel about it, and that's sort of how I, you know, react to those kind of ideas. No, I love that, um, Stephen. This has been great. I want to be totally respectful of your time. We've gone a little bit over, which is great, but there's been a lot here. This has been this podcast has been a primer for this, which is also a primer: the art of impossible, a peak performance primer. Stephen, before I let you go, um, I always like to ask, um, what's a simple action i didn't say easy a simple action somebody can take to start to follow what's in this primer today what's one simple action someone can start with everybody has what is technically known as a primary flow activity this is whatever thing you've done most of your life that just drops you into flow for some people for me it's skiing right for some people it's riding a mountain bike or walking their dog through nature or playing chess or dancing salsa or dancing hip hop or drawing you know drawing graphic novels or whatever it is for you you know what I'm talking about, I, I, I'm guessing. Um, we didn't actually spend much time defining flow. We did, but, but, um, but there, it's all in here, and I'd love right. to have you on flow. again at some point, too. We can, we can do it. <laughs> my, so my flow is those moments of rapt attention and total resource. We get so focused on the task at hand, everything else just disappears, and all aspects of performance tend to go through the roof. That's flow. We all have a primary flow activity. When we become adults, the first thing we do is we park that primary flow activity at the door. We say, oh, no, I, I can't go skiing or surfing or salsa dancing. I'm a responsible adult. I have a job. I have a family. I have bills. And it's a disaster from a performance standpoint. And here's why. A couple things about flow. One, flow is essentially a focusing skill. So the more flow you get, the more flow you get. If I go surfing on Monday and drop into flow, it appears that I'm training my brain to get more flow at work on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? right? So, and flow is a massive amplification in performance. So, you know, that really matters. Two, as we transition into flow, the brain, the body releases uh, nitric oxide. It's a gases signaling molecules everywhere in the body. And what it does is it flushes stress hormones out of our system and it replaces them with performance enhancing feel good neurochemicals like dopamine and serotonin, et cetera, et cetera. We live in a super high, crazy stress society. We are automatically resetting the nervous system back to zero. You're calming down. That's an amazing boost. Even better, the same neurochemicals that, that do that. They also boost the immune system, which in today's world, time of COVID, not a bad thing to do. No. Here's the, here's the, but here's the kicker. Here's the coolest part. So flow is a massive application in productivity and motivation. Some studies, 500% above baseline. Same thing with creativity and innovation, right? It's 400 to 700% increases depending on whose numbers you're looking at. But both that heightened productivity and definitely the heightened creativity will out. Flow states are about like 90-minute experiences on average. They go up and down, but average about 90 minutes. That heightened creativity, this is Teresa Mobley's work at Harvard. It's not, it's not my lab's work. Um, will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. Same thing with the heightened productivity. So doubling down on your primary flow activity, one, you're going to get more flow if all your other work environments. Two, it's going to calm you the fuck down and boost your immune system. Really great thing in any conditions, especially because anxiety blocks all aspects of pre-performance. Three, you're going to be more productive and creative. And four, flow. the more flow we get, the higher we'll score on overall well-being and life satisfaction, right? And we all know the correlation between life satisfaction, well-being, and quality of work, and productivity, and all that stuff. So you're, this one thing 
this thing that you, it sounds ridiculous. Like, I know I'm putting away childish things. You're telling me to go back and do the very thing, yeah. right? Yes, I am. And by the way, but you, again, it's like um, earlier we talked about autonomy. How much autonomy do you really need, right? Well, it's funny. It's that 15% time, you could actually spend it doing your primary flow activity and that might cover it. The research shows you need about three to four hours a week during a primary flow activity to really start working with this. Um, so it's, it's usually about an afternoon a week, but you can break it up like an hour here, an hour here, an hour here, an hour here, 20 minutes, 20 minutes, 20, you know what I mean? Kind yep. of thing. Um, so sorry that there was a four minute answer. No, not no, a 30 no, but second that's good because I, uh, I know I got to let you go, but I definitely want to have you back at some point. Where can you pick up the book, Stephen? Where can people pick Amazon up? is your friend here. <laughs> um, but if you're not shopping online and you're actually out in the real world, support your indies. Awesome. And it's stephencotler.com. That's where we want to send people. Stephencotler.com. If you want more, we didn't do flow a lot, but flowresearchcollective.com is uh, my organization. And if you just go to the video page, there is so much free flow content there. Lots of stuff. Hours and hours and hours and stuff. You don't even have to spend your money on the book. You can just go watch me blah, blah, blah for hours. Stephen, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today on the Productivity Mike, Podcast. Mike, it was my pleasure. Cheers. Take care of yourself. What did I tell you? What a great conversation. I mean, Stephen knows flow. He knows what it takes to perform at a peak level. And I have to say, you need to pick up this book because it's going to give you some insights that you need to play at the highest level and in a sustainable way too. So not just to the point where you're going to burn out, but understanding how to get there and then kind of putting a framework in place to help you get there consistently and sustainably, that's huge. And the recipe for that is inside of this book. So thanks to Stephen for joining me on the show. Of course, you can look at everything we discussed and follow up with Stephen using the links in the show notes. And if you're not subscribed to the program already, make sure you do that. You can do that wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. We've got a ton of great guests that have already been on the program and plenty more to come. Next episode, I've got Steve Glaveski on the show. Easy for me to say. Steve Glaveski is returning to the podcast. He's been on the show before, so you can go back and listen to that episode. But Steve and I are going to talk about uh, his, his latest work, uh, just... Again, another fantastic conversation week in and week out. You get that here on the Productivity is Podcast. So please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's it for now. Until next week, when I'm joined by Steve Globeski, this is Mike Vardy, the host of the Productivity is Podcast, reminding you to stop guessing and start going. See you later. <laughs>